Good afternoon. It's five o'clock on Tuesday, 26th of October in the UK. And welcome to this week's What Comes Next Live podcast recorded live to an audience of millions. Well, okay. A few close friends, perhaps. Um, this is really listened to mostly by the podcast listeners later. My guest this week and not the first person from the Liminal Network. Um, and at the same time, many thanks to Roland for setting it up and being the community leader, um, because through Liminal, I've met loads of great people, a number of whom have had these conversations with me. So my guest is Roland Harwood, the illustrious leader of We Are Liminal, Hello. who I imagine I've not spoken to for a while, but I imagine is extremely active, uh, what with COP26 and thoughts around net zero. Um so welcome, Roland. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Nice to see you. Cool. And um, we didn't have any time for small talk because we just rocked up at one minute too. <laughs> I'm just back from a four-hour walk with a client. That sounds lovely. Quite um, blissful. Ten miles walking. Um, and uh, I just made, I had to take the bus back the last 2K uh, to make sure I got back in time, but I'm comfortably in time. So that's where I am, um, and I'm in south of London. I think you're in the north of London, unless you're somewhere else. I'm in the north of London. I had a 10K run this morning with my sons, who are on half-term holiday and very reluctant, but dragged them out for a run. And then I've been on back-to-back Zoom calls since then for most of the day. So I'm a little bit frazzled, but I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So, um, um, so I'll be sipping my tea if that's okay as we go, but yeah. Well, but there's nothing more British. So, um, <laughs> tell us, tell, for our audience, just tell, tell them a little bit about yourself and, and then let's just talk about what's, what's going on for you. Sure. Okay. I am, um, uh, yeah, in North London. My dad's American. My mum's German. Um, so interested in culture, cultures colliding, because that's sort of in my DNA. Um, I, did a science degree once upon a time, PhD in physics. Um, and so the first half of my career was in sort of scientific research and development in the energy and telecoms sector. And the second half of my career until today has all been around design and innovation and building communities and, and networks. Um, and yeah, two and a bit years ago, I was at a bit of a sort of transition in my own kind of life and career and decided, um, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I sort of knew I wanted to do it with creative and entrepreneurial people and do something that was a bit more purpose-driven. And that led me to founding this community called Liminal, which you're, I'm now delighted to say, part of, Tom. And um, there's a long tail of participation, but there's kind of 120 people on the database of whom I would say a third are actively engaged, a third are sort of partially engaged and a third probably could do with cleansing from the database but twas ever thus and um yeah we come together monthly as you know uh daily ish online via slack and um increasingly um it's there for peer support and learning and sharing of experiences but also in different combinations we come together and deliver projects as a sort of distributed consultancy and almost all of that right now is to do with COP26 that you've already mentioned and designing the transition towards net zero and sustainable business models with with all sorts of people so yeah (laughs) that's kind of a whistle-stop tour of who I am and liminal and and what I've been up to most recently. What you're a a touch on who you are and and what what energizes you and what you're doing Um, 
Yeah, for me, the, the, the being part of that, we both connected online through the word liminal, the meaning of liminal. Um, yeah. and I've been part of that community for about a year now and some, some cool conversations. So, um, and, um, you, I think the engagement numbers, yeah, if you can go above 10, 20% in any network, you're doing great. Um, so I found lots of different energizing, um, conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued as to what's, what your thoughts around where we are in net zero, um, what COP26 will and won't do. Um, I'll try to, you know, let's try to keep the conversation positive and forward moving because it'd be very easy to go in the opposite direction, although that's not your style. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts? What, 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 what's achievable? Um, well, this literally is the sort of the trillion, quadrillion dollar question. Um, it's make or break. Anton Guterres from the United Nations talked about COP26 being, you know, humanity's last best chance to save the planet, which is pretty dramatic language. But I think the science, I think, backs that up. Um, our political leaders are at varying degrees of uh, managing expectations or trying to downplay expectations or possibly overplay what can be achieved um, in the coming weeks, in the coming couple of weeks. I'm going to be in Glasgow from next Thursday onwards for for a few days and then the week after. Um, I, um, I, I don't know what's going to happen. It's prediction is a dangerous game. I think I take comfort from the, the response in some ways to the, the pandemic that we've had where scientists around the world came together to develop a vaccine in sort of rec- record breaking time. Mm. And that ability when faced with an existential crisis to harness minds and organizations and capital mm. to, to do something really quite remarkable. And I think we need to do that again, but sort of on steroids uh, over a longer period of time over, over the next decade or more in order to tackle the climate emergency. So that is, um, probably the biggest challenge we've ever faced uh, as a species. And, um, you know, it could literally be existential, but I also am um, a great believer in the potential of people to come together and, and solve problems. So I think, um, I think it's dangerous to put too much responsibility on, on the shoulders of any single kind of group, uh, where, even if it's powerful groups like, uh, like governments, uh, and, or, or business or, or investors. Um, so, but I'm, I don't want to say I'm optimistic because that, 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 but I'm, I'm hopeful hmm. that we can, um, uh, we can seize this opportunity in the way that we need to. And I have lots of really inspiring conversations within, with people doing great stuff. And I think what's missing a little bit is the, the connections between some of those things so that they really right. amplify and get to scale. So that's what I'm trying to do through some of the work that I'm doing right now. So there's one thing you talked about there. Big part of what I look at is um, communications and alignment and language and, and mm. what can land and what can land with people. Mm-hmm. What I see is that as, as a species, as any form of organization underneath that large set is not ready, not ready for radical change. And the can keeps being kicked down the road. Um, and the positive, the, the thing you mentioned, which 
Um, it's a great, I, I'm absolutely against unfettered capitalism. I, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I thought it was great. We now have had 40 years of disciples of Milton Friedman mm-hmm. saying free capital. And what we've really seen is rapacious capitalism and growing inequality. Mm-hmm. However, I am a fan of business and capital as a force for good. Mm-hmm. And there is some stuff going on about, you know, this rush to ESG, a lot of it's box ticking and, oh, yeah, we can make the same returns, which we can't. We need to be longer term for the planet and people. But the great example you used was the development of the COVID vaccines. Mm. And the, a lot of the I've been giving a lot of thought to how to reach vaccine skeptics because we're beyond rationality that nobody's going to listen to rash. Nobody's going to move from a rational thought right now. Mm. They have to feel it. And yet the idea of the fact that we did, they're going, you know, this lack of trust. And so the, how did we develop vaccines so quickly? And there's some great papers I read about over a year ago about, well, the reason we were able to do that, Hmm. um, this is before they were released to the public was Hmm. because one of the things which takes an awful long time for vaccines to be developed is not just the trials and the time Hmm. you need for those, but also the amount of funding you need. Right. And the amount of coordination you need between private sector, research, development, manufacturing, regulators, healthcare systems, etc. And everybody just went, we're in crisis. Let's throw billions and trillions at it. Yeah. And, it, and something that could have taken 10 years took a matter of months. So that that anchor to me is a fantastic parallel that can be drawn with this hopefulness and optimism and actually the I, I there is absolutely a place for radicalism um whether it's on the housing crisis uh, i was deeply involved in the twitter conversation on that with some mm-hmm. very radical uh people um last week just to understand them but i mean whether it's extinction rebellion whether it's greta thunberg whether it's all, all of that but we have to build bridges between people if we're actually going to see change so on the one hand so to me it's the word the capital sits somewhere in the middle whether it's governments printing money Mm. which they can do it's modern monetary theory whether or not rishi sunak believes it um or whether it's whether it's investors in that language global capital this is existential right they're gonna have no business if they don't deal with it Mm. But to find the bridge between the, the radical situation we face ourselves in and the language they, they, they will understand, which is, you know, around the fact that we absolutely have to pull together and deploy capital globally at a massive mm. scale very fast towards a common goal. Because without doing that in radical language, you'll have no business in a generation. Um, so I just, that's what's occurring to me is your parallel of the vaccines. So I've been talking for a few minutes. The parallel of vaccines is very powerful and potentially one of the connectors is where are you going to allocate your capital? And it's way beyond box ticking and greenwashing of Coca-Cola or Shell or, you know, other things like this. It's it, it's the people whose capital is invested in them. It's the fund managers, mm-hmm. it's the pension funds, it's the institutional capital and pension funds invest for the future and they're the biggest investors in the world. And, you know, anyway. Yeah, I, I'd love to respond to some of those points. Uh, there's a lot in what you just said, if that's OK. Um, no, I'm, I'm done with my ramble, but hopefully it's cohesive. <laughs> well, uh, so 
just starting with the where you finished, which is around pension funds. So at the beginning of this year, I listened to the BBC Reef Lectures, uh, which you might be familiar with. And this year it was Mark Carney, the former chair of the Bank of England and Bank of Canada. And somewhere within those talks, which I'm sure are still available somewhere online, um, he said the best thing you can do as an individual if you have a pension is to shift it to um, a sort of green pension because money talks. Right. Um, and so I have a modest pension that I've been paying into. And I, I thought, OK, I'm going to do that. I've been thinking about it for a few years and I finally got around to doing it. It was really administratively cumbersome and it took me a long time. I finally got there. Um, uh but yeah, so th- that that seems to be one thing that that we can all try and do. And I think the more people that do that, the more um, that will have an impact at a sort of more institutional level, which I think is starting to happen. But what's that quote? You know, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. And I think we've all been doing nothing for far too long when it comes to climate. Um, and I think the thing that we don't know, but the COVID vaccine rollout gives me some hope, is you mentioned Greta Thunberg. She said, you know, very vividly only a year or so ago that she wants us collectively to behave as if our house is on fire because it is on fire. But, you know, none of us really know how we're going to respond in a crisis or when our house is on fire, whether metaphorically or physically, until we're actually, you know, faced by the flames. Yeah. And that, um, you know, it shows who you are. And that reminds me of... Um, well, two things, actually, if I could just be permitted two quick conversations okay. and then I'll pause. But one is um, I mentioned briefly at the top that I'm half German. When I was uh, 14 going on 15, I lived in, in what was West Berlin at the time. This was 1987, 1988. It was just before the, the wall came down. Mm-hmm. Um And my mum is originally from East Germany, so I have family in East Germany. I remember becoming politically and socially aware and active and interested in what what the hell is this wall that surrounds the city that you can never drive more than 20 minutes in any direction until you see it and you can't go any further and um anyway i remember going to visit family and friends in east germany who were absolutely adamant that the wall would not come down in their lifetime and these were kind of friends of my parents who must have been in their 40s or something like that at the time i'm guessing Mm -hmm. um and 11 months later um, the wall had come down. And for me, that was a very vivid lesson at an impressionable age that, you know, grown ups telling you something is impossible, which then within a year becomes possible. Um, so it's that kind of mindset, which I think got us to the vaccine rollout. Um, and I have other examples of that as well. But anyway, maybe, maybe I'll just kind of leave it there. But, um, yeah, so we don't know how we're going to behave when the house is on fire. So it's, we're really, the pressure is on. Um, but what was previously impossible can become possible. And I think that's, uh, we need to sort of discover some of that courage and some of that mindset now. So what th- there is, th- I mean, that's a huge element in human behavior is not to act until you're in a crisis. Right. Um, yeah. you know, where I lived most of my adult life is the Cayman Islands, which is a very wealthy island. Hmm. And in a lot of areas, they, I find that the, the, the leaders, leaders there choose not to be radically proactive. 
because they have a lot to protect. Yeah. Whereas if you're in a in, a, in another country which is desperately poor, they're much more willing to make radical change because mm. that the house is already burning. Mm. It's not covered in ten layers of insulation. So perhaps pushing from two directions is you know the first thought is how do we get people to realize that that the flames are approaching their house and the second one from the other direction is often people will act defensively out of fear of out of fear of their ability to do something if the flames reach their house because we don't know but actually behaviorally we do know how people act under crisis um there's a lot in that i could could expand upon but basically if we use example some examples from history of you know how did the fall of fall of the berlin wall was not was a was amazing thing what really stunned me it was the financial might that what was west germany Hmm. but towards integrating east germany Hmm. which was a decade plus dent in gdp and living standards but it's not even talked about anymore outside Germany because it's just now it's all folded together. And that was a radical and brave thing, but there wasn't a lot of choice in it. But there was this sense in Germany that we can do that. We've been an economic powerhouse since, since the mid, you know, since after the war. Hmm. So how, how do we get people to realize that, how, that the flames are licking at the front door and how to, and, and realize that, oh, by the way, We'll be able to pull together as a neighborhood when the flames reach us from, say, a California forest fire to our suburb, and we'll be able to put the flames out or at least damp them down. Well, in some ways, the flames already are, you know, if you live in Western Canada or yeah, um, even in London, you know, flooding uh, um, on the underground this summer or Germany or um, I can't remember where it was in China, but, you know, we, we're, we're having... The, the flames or the floods are, are here now. Um, so yeah, we seem to have moved on this, uh, from this situation where, you know, the climate skeptics are given equal airtime to the climate scientists, which was true until, you know, relatively recently, a decade ago or so. Mm-hmm. The consensus seems to be that, uh, our actions as a species contribute to climate change and we need to do something about it. How we go about it is another matter. I think. For me, comparing the the revolution versus the uh, well, the the the, um, the 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 leaders in the Cayman Islands who have a lot to protect and, and are maybe slow to change because they perhaps don't have the incentive to move to a new investment model or a new business model or a, or a new economic model versus those people who have very little and, and have nothing to lose or little to lose. Um, I think. And we were having a conversation about this on the liminal Slack channel just last week when faced with a binary choice, always choose both. So it's not evolution. (laughs) It's both of those things at the same time, because what else can we do? You know, when faced with the pandemic and I can be and I am very critical of the way in the UK, the government handled the early stages of the pandemic. And lots of other people have talked about that and written about that and have studied that far more than I have. But. You know, they threw money and effort, and I think all governments did this in, to varying degrees, in, in tons of different directions, in a way that you wouldn't out of cr- times of crisis. And 
I remember having a conversation with a very senior kind of military leader guy who worked for the Ministry of Defense. And I would just full, I would describe myself as a pacifist and, and not interested in, but I'm sort of fascinated by, um, sort of war strategy, I guess, uh, as, as many people would be. Um, he, he shared some very vivid examples and I can't remember the details now, I'm afraid, but that, our armed forces and a kind of military strategy are brilliant in wartime, but terrible in peacetime. So the things that make them effective in wartime, their ability to adapt and improvise and, and the communication uh, that flows through the command and control hierarchy and everything else that comes with that is very well suited to a sort of wartime crisis style uh, situation. But when it comes to peacetime, when, when, when you're not, it, it grinds to it this uh, um, mind-numbingly inefficient kind of bureaucracy that that is is very. Um, uh, so it kind of what makes us successful in one mode, you know, makes us unsuccessful in another, and, and vice versa. So there's something there's something to learn from that, and I don't quite know what it is, but I think yeah, I feel very strongly that increasingly we're faced with binary choices, and that we should avoid those because inevitably. Mm-hmm. The answers are always in the liminal spaces, the gray areas in between the polar opposites. And so, yeah, when faced with a binary choice, choose both. I just wrote that down. And what you've been, the two, the binary choices felt like using the comfy examples we talked about, revolution or evolution. Yeah. And um, always choose both. Um, yeah, I love that. So back to my, what I'm sitting with is this idea of, I'm a business guy, right? So what I'm sitting with is the idea of the, if you can make it feel both evolutionary and revolutionary to the people with the capital. Hmm. So evolutionary that they feel that they can, that they can get their heads around it and that their, that their stakeholders will be okay with it. And yeah, we might not get 10% return on capital, but we might get 4% for the next 30 years, but hmm. that's better than 10% for 10 years. And then the planet burns. Hmm. Um, but if you go too revolutionary, they're just going to switch off. Mm. But there has to be a certain amount of revolution to realize that the house is burning. Mm. But, but it's the solution is not some new sci-fi Elon Musk-esque solution to putting flames out. We already have the solution. We just need to deploy tons of it using huge amounts of capital. But we know how to fix this. We're just mm. choosing not to do it yet. Um, I think that's definitely true. And what I'm about to say, I can't back up sort of scientifically, but I, I believe it more strongly than I believe almost anything, which is the problem to almost any, sorry, the solution to almost any problem that almost any individual or organization that I can articulate is almost certainly out there somewhere. Um, and so the challenge of problem solving or innovation in this increasingly connected world is one of connecting people and ideas. It's not necessarily inventing radically new science or solutions, even though there probably is a time and a place for some of that. But I think that's the vast, vast majority of cases. I think in most cases, I think it's always been true or maybe not always, but it's it's long been true that the solutions to problems are out there somewhere, but the, the, the friction and inertia to find them has just been too great. But, you know, it's only been in the last 25 years that we've had 
the World Wide Web and only really in the last sort of 10 years that we've had this kind of, you know, the fact that you and I and people listening to this are kind of two or three degrees separated from virtually anybody and everybody on the planet. And and I don't think we our mindset and our business models or our de- models of democracy have caught up anything mm-hmm. like that level of connectivity. And but um and the kind of ex- exponential nature of that as well. So, you know, um so yeah, there's a lot to be done and I certainly don't have all the answers, but I sort of feel there's some glimmers of hope and opportunity mm. um to to kind of latch onto and i um you know i've enjoyed you know your involvement in the the liminal community and the conversations i've had with you and it's creating the space for um uh for connection to take place uh, and just holding the space for that um, whether it's running, well, yeah, well, yeah, however you might go about doing that. But, um, and then of course, capital is a key driver of all of that. But, um, yeah, anyway, I don't know if you agree with that, but I think profoundly, I think the art of innovation these days is being a good detective, finding the people, finding the ideas that are out there. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not about being a mad genius inventor in the bathtub, having the eureka moment, even though, you know, we still need our geniuses in bathtubs as well, but, but that's not what necessarily will save us i think we need more more detectives anyway i'm absolutely agreeing with you and i'm also self-aware enough to know it's my own biases as well um i happen to agree with you and what i wrote down what you said was the solutions are already out there the problem is connecting people and ideas um i'm fundamentally lazy mm-hmm. so i work i you know my 20s and 30s i completely work ground it out Massive learning curve, learned a lot, worked hard. And now my 40s, now my mid 50s, I'm not interested in doing the research. I, I, I think of an idea normally through listening to somebody like you or reading something. And then I don't do the empirical research. I look online. I find somebody's already done it. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, I don't think you're particularly unique. Yeah. And um, the, the second part of that thought is that I, I had, you know, my own existential philosophical thinking that I have time for because my kids have grown and gone and I'm not, you know, I have less demands on my time mm. and my work is structured to create lots of space. Um, and I realized that I live for people and ideas. Mm. So I'm absolutely agreeing with you. Mm. And I think the, I think one of the things about global, totally different topic for another day, but one of the things about the, the catalytic effect of the pandemic in terms of people's working practice, uh, going to offices, not going to offices. This is temporary thing of don't cut my pay because I'm working from home, et cetera. And then the thing, the one of the things I've written about and talked about is that if people, if their job is coding, if their job, which right now is one of the highest paid jobs in the world, software engineer, engineers, mm. um, at the youngest age, um, if their job is doing something and producing product, um, that's going to move to lower cost jurisdictions. If, if their value is connecting people and ideas, mm. my, that I totally agree with you that that's the, that's the way to best use the technology and the interconnection and the exponential nature of connections, um, to make a difference. Mm. Um, so the, some people are innately good at it. Um, or passionate about it. And then there's a ton of skills to learn and I'm always learning and I'm still an introvert who doesn't really like big, big groups in person. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, people like you and I tend to be connectors and we just, we'll, we'll make, we'll think of something or we'll hear somebody and then we'll try to connect somebody who can do something about it. And mm-hmm. I think that network effect is, is huge. And it's, uh, I'm really glad you're going up to Glasgow to be part of the, the first week, but more importantly, the second week. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see what connections you can make and what conversations you can have and what might be able to cut through to the, to in the in the levels that we're looking at to see who who they can then connect ideas to and capital to etc. So yeah, interesting times. Definitely interesting. I mean, um, uh, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, I think yeah, two things. One is um, asking for help. I'm also lazy, and I, it took me a long time to realise. People are generous. If you ask for help in the right way, you know, they might not be able to help or they might not want to be able, uh, want to help for whatever reason. But, um, I, it's taken me a long time to realize that if I'm grappling with something, just, just ask for help and, you know, uh, and, and people want to kind of rally around that. I think in terms of going up to Glasgow, at one level, I feel like I'm just a tiny cog in a huge set of whirring machines. Uh, and what what influence can I possibly have in amongst all of the noise and all the activity? But at another level, I'm challenging myself, and I'm saying this to you partly to hold myself accountable, and you can ask me how it went in two weeks' time, is to be bolder in terms of how I ask for help, be bolder in terms of um, the conversations I have or, or the connections I'm able to make, because, you know, you je- literally never know what might happen. And so, um, yeah, I'm saying that largely to my future self. Um, next week. Maybe that's part of thought for you or for other people. As well. well, I'll give you my last thought, then I'll leave you to give the closing words for us. Um, I have known for many years a wonderful, energetic Scottish guy called Sandy Kennedy, who recently changed roles after being the founder and leader of the Entrepreneurial Scotland Network for well over a decade. And Sandy is one of the world's Uber connectors. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't anybody in Scotland he can't be connected to with like one degree of connection, I would say. Uh-huh. Um, and Sandy teaches networking classes to graduates, etc. And I've been in those events that he's run. He's amazing. And one thing I took from it is always have an ask. And, I, and I've struggled with that myself. So I'm always there to see how I can help. What can I give? And I'm sometimes reticent to ask for anything. So he will listen to people, see where, how he can help, what can I do, who can I connect you to, and he can always have value in every conversation. At the end, he will say, and I have an ask for you. And he might not go into the conversation with an ask, but there's always something he can ask for. And he says, I do it because then it helps me do more of what I do, mm. but I also do it because people love to be asked to help. Yeah. So always have an ask. So there's a thought for you to and maybe stretch a tiny bit further when you're there. Whenever you have a meaningful conversation with somebody in Glasgow, always have an ask. I, I think that's a great place to finish. I would just add one letter, which is make pl- make it plural. Have have three asks, <laughs> because people might, might not be able to help with the first one. But um, there you go. You, so you're you're set up for some accountability there. So um, when you get off this call. Um, you can go onto my site and book a meeting when you get back and uh, put a note in it saying I'm checking on accountability for COP26 and I'll talk uh, to you when you get back. <laughs> I uh, I would love that. That I would appreciate that very much. But yeah, I um, 
yeah, so the, the only reason why I add the, the, the S there is, um, you know, it might be I'm really keen to talk to someone working in government in Portugal, uh, working on, you know, uh, energy or something. Um, so if you know anyone there, then, um, you know, I'd love to be put in touch. But I'm also working on a project on X um, and I've got a set of skills and knowledge in a, in a third domain. So I'm a big believer in the rule of three. So if you can give people three different kind of buckets um or uh, of of knowledge or opportunity or or asks um then uh and you engage people in the right way and you show interest in them so it's a reciprocal mm-hmm. thing then uh it's it's remarkable what can come from that and and often it can take days months years i just yeah. found out the other day somebody i had a chance encounter with 10 years ago turns out i had a really pivotal role in something that we went on to do but I only just found that out about three days ago. But it may, and, and there's probably a whole load of things that we all do that we never even realize. Um, so, so yeah, work those networks, ask those questions and, um, and, uh, yeah, it's make or break. So I look forward to reconnecting in two weeks. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's up to, up to you to book it and be accountable. Um, and I've got one little, we're just polishing this idea for you and one little thought. And it's, it's a both and it's a, um, choose both. Yeah. Um, and it might be different in different conversations. And how about this from a creating a call to action using sales language? All right. You say, I've got three, three asks for you. Um, I'd love, can I just share them with you? And. Which one resonates for you most right now? Hmm. And that way, the, the rule of threes helps people choose one, right? Yeah. People much prefer three because it's less binary than two. So if you give them three, then there's, they, they may more easily choose one they can action sooner. Yeah. They'll pick one. They'll definitely be one. And then, yeah, who knows? So that's great. We've, we've prototyped it. Prototype that. I'm going to test that in Glasgow. We'll just prototype the model and I'll talk to you when you get back. Okay. (laughs) All right. I look forward to that. Okay. Um, So let me just do my thing and end the show. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure, Roland. Uh, Many, many thanks and I look forward to talking to you soon. Great. Thanks, Tom. Bye, everyone.